to Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I'll be your host for today, and my co-host will be Mark Kilborn. Hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I am excellent, because we are here to talk about the amazing sound work in the latest film from director Jordan Peele called Nope. This film has a lot going on, but it centers around a brother and sister who live on a remote horse farm somewhere on the outskirts of Hollywood. Strange things are happening, and they are compelled to try and untangle the mystery. From a sound perspective, a huge amount of the plot is revealed through off-screen sound design. And then when things start happening on screen, the sound continues to carry a heavy workload, deliver the menace and at times beauty of our film's hunter. There will be major spoilers coming, so proceed with caution. Joining us today for our talk will be the film's re-recording mixer, sound designer, and supervising sound editor, Johnny Byrne. Welcome to Tonebenders, Johnny. It's great to meet you. Tim, hi. Great to be here. Awesome. Okay, before we start talking about Nope, uh, I would like to put a little wind in the sails of Johnny. There are lots of sound pros out there that are great at coming up with interesting sounds that blow us away in big dramatic scenes. But there are way fewer people out there that are able to create a mood, develop a vibe through sound design in the smaller moments that normally we tend to give off to the score to control the reins. In the 90s, Skip Lives Day was one of my favorites in this regard. In those early Coen Brother films, oh, they were so great. Another one is Paul Davies. Eileen Lee in First Man did an amazing job at this. But when I first saw Under the Skin... I knew Johnny was another name to add to this list. I'm always excited when a new film comes out with Johnny on board because I know the sound design is going to create a texture I am not expecting, and the mood is going to be a character in the film as much as any actor. So Johnny, I guess my first question is, how do you go about finding a thread to start building what I'm calling here the film's vibe, its mood? Yeah, what I try and do is is to just work out how to best convey the mood of a scene by using whatever diegetic sound you can. And, and to make the choices about that to be the ones that will most convey an emotion. And I guess part of that is, as much as possible, making things lean towards a musicality of some sort. In this film, I think that maybe one of the things you leaned on for that kind of thing was wind. There's all sorts of winds going on here. Uh, were you out in the field recording winds? Where did you come up with uh, some of the winds, the really evocative ones in this film? It's funny that because when I first started talking with Jordan about the project, the first thing we were discussing was how actually the whole thing with Jean Jacket and the the entity would be that we were hearing it more just by the way it was disturbing the environment and how the kind of the winds would change when it was nearby. Through doing that, I then I've got a recording of couple of wins from various projects as most people like us do but that I then realized that actually what I needed was kind of gusts of wind rather than you know here's a strong constant wind or whatever fortunately I live by the seaside which is um a windy place with a hill behind it so I spent an awful lot of time checking the weather and going up to the top of the hill you know just behind my house and and yeah I, I record wind all the time if if I'm on holiday you know I'm that guy with the microphone in the family holiday luggage one of the first things I did was play Jordan through, like, you know, hundreds of different rins, and he was, like, tired by the end of it. I'm glad you made me hear all of those, Johnny. That's that's really good. But we did get to a point where, actually, we found some interesting ones, and and then from there it was about the process of shaping those winds and taking the kind of the, the white noise that is a wind, you know, the blank canvas of full-spectrum sound and, and trying to coax out the pieces of that that start to become more mood-based. 
the enemy, the hunter in this film is a very odd creature. It doesn't have an obvious voice to it. And I'm curious where you found inspiration for that. You know, you look at it and my reaction was like, what would this thing even sound like if I were working on this? Um, it doesn't have an obvious mouth. It doesn't seem to like say anything up front. So how did you find the sound? Like what experiments did you go through? How did you get there? So in this movie, we hear the monster a few different ways. In, in the beginning of the film, we're hearing the kind of disturbance of the environment as it moves around and how the winds change. And then later on, we realize that the kind of whistle of the wind that we thought we were hearing is actually more likely the screams of people trapped inside. So one of the main ways we're hearing it is from the victims trapped inside. And then about halfway through the movie, we start to hear Jean Jacket the monster in a new way. And that's because the, the monster's got a bit pissed off and is um, has come to seek revenge. And now that's where we had to introduce a voice and some form of personification into the into the um, ingredients. And so for that, we were very specifically trying to find a way of being able to express the animal state, but without giving away too much that it's not necessarily an animal. You know, at, the, at that point in the film, we were still understanding that perhaps we're here to watch an alien spaceship movie, not here's an animal. So for the kind of scenes mid-film where we're hearing Jean Jacket screaming at Duke, that sound is is part synthesizer, part peacock, part human growl, part kazoo, but a kind of a calf or blend in order to to try and not give away too much about, you know, the origin of the species or anything. And then later on in the film, we're hearing the monster suddenly change into this enormous winged beast, and that's when it's in kind of full look-at-me mode. But all of those sounds actually had an origin from the original start point of wind and looking at how, how you could coax musical frequencies and pitch out of a single piece of wind, and you could then shape that wind to either become the same kind of cadence as a human scream. And so you, you could hear a human scream and then straight after hear the kind of tail out of that mimicking it in wind as if the monster was maybe trying to do the thing where you sort of cough if you farted to kind of <laughs> to kind of hide what you're, what just happened. And, and then we go on to the point of, of using the same wind but having them sound more beautiful through a kind of harmonic pitch. The main thing we were trying to do was was create something that sounded organic but didn't give away the idea that it was uh, necessarily animal, could still be scientific. And did the director, did he have ideas in his head about what this would sound like or did he kind of leave you to your own devices? Well, so I came on about six months before the shoot. So the, the first conversation I had with Jordan was, hey, I've got this great script that I'm writing and he sent it to me and it was I was amazed by how much it described sound. And then I kind of chipped in and, and had some ideas and the script was rewritten a few times more with, you know, basing a, a bit more solidly about certain sound ideas. So, um, so yeah, after in fact, after my first script read, I sent Jordan 10 little web files that were, um, here's how I imagine it. 10 feet away and here's how we'd hear it if it's half a mile away so we built up this library of different ideas for the kind of wrong winds was how jordan would call it he said i want to hear it like natural but just sort of slightly wrong and then he'd kind of leave it up to me to to create some way of having a personality come through the the shape of a bit of wind for example
So something that I'm really curious about is you wore three distinct hats on this film. Uh-huh. So you were the sound designer, supervising sound editor, and re-recording mixer. And in general, for a film this size, the in the credits, the sound team is quite small. Yeah. And boy, did I regret it in the last couple of months when <laughs> I had so much to do. <laughs> well, that, that might be where my question is leading. But uh, like, how do you even get like a major movie studio? Because like, obviously, a smaller sound team can't crunch through the amount of stuff in the same amount of time as, you know... 10 or 15 people working on it. Uh, like a b- big Hollywood movie studio, they want their movie out in theaters, I'm assuming, as fast as possible. How do you convince the director, the producers, to have the trust in you to be a smaller team, but that you, they'll get a better product in the end? So there is a fair bit about my workflow that's different and does support a kind of a, a smaller team. I mean, I can outline in, in uh, briefly, but basically um, there were two things that kind of played to the favour of wearing three hats. Number one, I was on the project for a year and a half and we did a whole pass of the film before the film was even shot. So I worked on the script and we had pre-visualisation and where the pre-visualisation didn't work or didn't exist, I actually just sort of did a screenshot of the script and would scroll that. So I had a whole two hour long movie with all the sound design all worked out and all the different ideas and different permutations, enormous library of sound design alternatives. So I figured when we get to the post-production stage, I probably would be all right, you know, and because we knew where we were going with sound design, so I wouldn't need to wear that hat too much. And the supervising sound editor bit was, you know, is in big Hollywood movies, a lot of that is administrative and is all the kind of the, the stuff you have to do when you're not mixing. So yes, it became extremely complicated in the in the final six weeks when the execs from Universal would come in and say, how's the movie going? And I'd be like, it's great, you know, and come and have a listen. And it was definitely sounding great, but uh, there was, you know, every night I'd have a couple of hours work to do that would be admin after after mixing. So I wouldn't do that again. But (laughs) the other thing that's um, really plays the favour of wearing three hats is that I I don't work in Pro Tools, I work in Nuendo because I find it a better creative tool and it it allows me to bring together, you know, 2,000 tracks of a mix very easily and be able to sculpt a mix from beginning to end. So whereas most people would need to wait to the mix stage to to start bringing all the units together and, and the different machines and generate the mix, for me, it's all in one machine. And, you know, from the very first stuff that I'm talking with Jordan about and the, the pass of the film we did before the film was even shot, that was the beginnings of the mix for me. You know, I some of the background windscapes and, and some of the 5-1 spatiality that, that I had going on two months before we shot the film existed up until the, the final mix. So I'm always chipping away more like a kind of a, a long-term sculpture at the mix than I am waiting to get to the mix stage to see how to put it together. So I had confidence and I convinced the studio that it was going to work to, you know, to you take me on for a longer period of time and my workflow does facilitate wearing three hats. But yeah, as it turned out, gosh, didn't sleep much in uh, May and June this year. <laughs> wow. You you mentioned that you could go through your process. Is the building the soundtrack ahead of the movie something you do for every film or what, what's your unique process? So I don't always make a version of the whole film before a film, but it definitely was necessary here because we were finding that sound was so important in telling the story and it was going to be so informative to know what that sounded like at this point that it was really useful for Jordan to be able to play to Hoyter, for example, 
the cinematographer, you know, this is how we're going to hear this shot. And that really informed where to point the camera and how much VFX was needed, you know, if at all. So in, in this case, yes, it was important to kind of to work out certainly all the set piece, you know, the seven or eight encounters where we actually have a scene with the alien in it. We did need to work that out beforehand because it, it was extremely beneficial. Yeah, so my workflow is, is very much, I work in Uendo. Each reel of the film is a, is a separate project. Um, you know, and it, and it will have all the hard effects, backgrounds, foley, dialogue, sound design and music cues all in that one project. And before the shoot, I'll be loading it up with these are what I think are backgrounds, lots and lots of muted clips and, and alternative versions all ready to go. And during the production itself, I'll be going to the film set and recording as many bits of foley and as many you know, alternative backgrounds and, a, and alternative dialogue takes that I can. And then I always want to give the picture editor a library, you know, at least sort of 20 gigabytes of sound that will be apposite for the material that we're working on. And, you know, to avoid that thing of having the picture editor using his own stuff with that, you know, that may not be even licensable or, or whatever, but certainly isn't what you've been developing. And, and then very much help the picture editor get the tracks in the Avid or whatever they're working in so that at any point in time that they have a kind of fully playable temp mix that will that will work because you've been furnishing them with all fully working sound design ideas and helping them clean up all the dialogue. So then that means that I, I will have been working in the background within my projects and when it gets sort of near cut lock, as if that happens these days, I have one reel per project, like I say, and I'll have one assistant who basically concentrates on each reel. I have a team of four in London with a Simon Carroll, who's the first assistant sound supervisor, and his team basically would help me manage all the needs, whatever it is, in terms of reconforming a reel, changing the backgrounds, working on the sound design. So I would be in America on the mix stage writing a bunch of detailed notes as I play the reel through to the director and whoever else wants to hear it. And those notes go in. And then as it turned out, because of the time zone, it worked very well because, you know, we would sleep and we'd wake up in the next morning and, and the overnight pixies would have changed the sound design or changed the backgrounds or whatever. So we had a pretty good workflow going where Jordan could come in on a daily basis and review all the reels and the next day we'd have a, a whole bunch of fresh work done basically that would that would uh, you know progress the film in terms of workflow how's that different yeah i think the main thing is, is is just that right from the beginning of the process we're starting to create the whole the what will be the the final mix um you know there, there isn't a kind of wait to get to the mix stage thing it's every decision that we're making is something that, that if it's good will go the distance basically you knew off the top that this was going to be getting an IMAX release and be an Atmos, I assume. I find that Atmos sometimes is not as cracked up as other people think it is. I'm not the hugest fan of Atmos. But sometimes a film comes along that is almost built for it. And there are a couple scenes in this film that the ceiling speakers can be really used to, for something special. Uh, do you want to talk about that maybe in terms of specifically the, the house scene where it's over top of the house and we hear the people screaming inside? I know. I mean, if ever there was a film made for Atmos, this is it, right? You've got <laughs> a monster flying around above you. And wow, I mean, what a treat. Yeah, so Real Five, about halfway through, we go into the house and we're there with uh, Kiki Palmer and Emerald, her character, and Angel, and we hear a scream off in the distance, Kiki turns around and she looks to the window, 
behind her and you hear a splash of water that comes over the house. And then basically she, um, she, we follow her eye line and she's looking at the roof. But what's happening is there's a wall of water traveling across the roof above us. And then it comes off the side of the house and splashes onto the, the ground next to them and, and kind of moves away. just an amazing thing to to work in atmos with that because you know you've got full bandwidth sound and it's above you so you can do the whole rumble thing and pinpoint accuracy with objects and we had a lot of fun recording various big hoses going on car roofs and the roofs of the, my shed at home and and various things like that and you know banging um <laughs> banging pieces of wood to kind of mock up the imaginary kind of hip of the roof as the as the water uh, travels along and then yeah, and, and panning that in the three D space of Atmos was um yeah was a real treat actually because so often you're working in Atmos and you're like well I could put it in the ceiling how about we have a helicopter that's good every film <laughs> needs a helicopter uh, but there isn't actually that much and particularly because even if you, there is a film with something happening above you it tends to be that the point of view of the camera doesn't actually support you know the the use of the ceiling speakers so it becomes a gimmick. Um, whereas in this film, there's there's a lot of times, and and it was something that you know Jordan and I discussed beforehand, where he could actually keep the camera level and not look up, and and then we would have the sound above us, and that would be all the information we needed. And Jordan was you know really keen on that kind of thing because, as is pretty evident, you know he he would much rather hear something and have people's imagination put some horrible thought in there rather than, you know, necessarily point the camera at it and, and make it more obvious. So pivoting a little bit, there were a lot of moments in this film where I couldn't quite tell if certain elements were sound design or music or perhaps the composer was acting like a sound designer. I'm curious what your collaboration process was like in that regard. Yeah, Michael came down to the mix stage. It was brilliant because to come down and go, wow, actually, I get it. Now, you know, even a composer may not actually hear the mix until the film's sort of, you know, out, but... But um, because we were sculpting the mix from an early point and because we were on the mix stage at uni for three and a half months, during the process of actually writing many of the cues, Michael Abels came to the mix stage and, and he, sort of, he was like, oh gosh, I get it. This is a really immersive, you know, wow. And so we discussed that it might be useful for him to create some tones and some of the more percussive moments, the, the staccato strings that happen when, when all the junk gets dumped on the house and various things like that. And yeah, we had discussions about how he could create sounds that were more sound design led. And then equally, pretty much everything I do whenever I'm laying in any atmosphere is is to think about the musicality of it and and whether or not it would suit the incoming or outgoing cue to have it sort of foreshadowed or, or you know, held on to. And it's usually like injecting musical frequency into a background sound by using sharp EQ spikes, that kind of thing. But also everything, you know, I'll be putting in will my team and I will be thinking about it from a rhythmic tempo point of view and from, you know, how it shapes the melody of, of the thing. I mean, the whole thing of a picture edit has a rhythm, doesn't it? So you're always trying to trying to work with that. I'm definitely a frustrated musician. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, was say, I don't know if it's useful as a question, but I noticed a few moments where I heard melodies and some of the sound effects and I could feel the rhythm of it. It was really, really well done. I don't think your average listener would notice that they'd just be immersed, but I caught it a few times and I was like, hey, he had a melody to those cable pops or whatever. It was great. Yeah, I work with Yorgos Lanthimos a lot. And when I do things like that on his films, he's like, really, do we have to do that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's fun. Come on. It's cool. <laughs> so uh, before, when I, when we locked down the interview time, I sent out on Twitter uh, to our listeners asking if they had any questions for you. And uh, we got some really good ones. And some of them are the same as questions we've already asked because uh, obviously we, we had the same ideas. One was about the, the dialogue. So Dave Shumway asked, he'd be curious to hear you talk about the work involved to make the dialogue gloriously crystal clear. I never missed a word, and yet it sounded 100% properly presented in the world alongside the ambiences and the design effect. How much of this film was ADR? How, how'd you get such clear dialogue in this? I love that question, Dave. <laughs> yeah, because so I, I watch films a lot, who doesn't? And so often di dialogue is treated as voiceover, you know, someone who's casually talking tenderly to their son, reading a story will be like, and then, you know, when we were, and it'll be rich and bassy, and you think, eh, it's not really real, is it? And so when, particularly with a film like Note, where you're in a really immersive soundscape, it, it would seem counterintuitive to then plop a full force voiceover -y sound in there. So a lot of it was ADR because it was an incredibly noisy film set. All the movement of dust to create the presence of the monster was made by a helicopter and that created a lot of noise. All those big flappy sky dancer things were permanently on and make an absolute racket and were everywhere across the whole field of play. And the valley itself was incredibly windy because the heat generated, it was like a 40 degree, you know, 110 Fahrenheit heat most days during the shoot. And that just creates such an enormous volume of air movement. And combined with the fact that um, Jordan does love to fine-tune script and narrative through ADR. So a lot of it was, but we would always, you know, microphone match. And 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 I'm quite keen on not having anyone too close mic for ADR because I want it to keep sounding natural. So you've got ADR hopefully not too um, overly recorded. And then when I mix it, I definitely want to make sure that things are correct for the perspective of the shot. And... It is a bit of an illusion because, you know, there are picture edits where you will come closer and you don't want to jump in or make it jarring because, you you know, you don't want to stop following the narrative. But you do want it to sound, you know, um, natural for the environment. And the loop group of people screaming inside the monster. We got a question about that from uh, Blaine Kramer. Thank you, Diana Carlton-Timms, the ADR supervisor and dialogue editor. And she spent a lot of time working with loop group to get those fantastic recordings. So originally the monster was going to be winds and then we started realizing how interesting screams were and then we started realizing loving that fine line between hearing a roller coaster in the distance and how people sound like they're enjoying themselves and then suddenly it can become awful when you realize that you're hearing screams of pain because if there's one thing worse than hearing an awful sound in a horror movie it's an awful sound in combination with a penny drop that something bad has happened so you know it's sort of uh, visceral and psychological element to it 
So Gianna said about getting 10 of Los Angeles' finest loop groupers, and she had a great time, you know, with them all like, right, now pretend you're in a roller coaster. Woo! And then she'd drop her hand and they'd all go, ah! <laughs> and that's the, the sound you're hearing when we are inside Jean Jacket at that point in the film. Yeah, it's deadly horrible. And Jordan was so keen on in that scene, believing that we weren't just with the people who we were tight in on on camera, but there were many other people in other parts of the digestive tract, kind of 10 feet away, 100 feet away and all that stuff. So that really helped with that. But yeah, it was, it's horrible, isn't it? Because you just imagine that could be you. And what about the rest of the, the sound effects for the interior of the beast? Ah, oh, so the interior of the beast. So that, where's my pop shield? That, um, yeah, I, this isn't the pop shield, but it's basically, it's, um, so I, I I do all for, my recording for those with listening a, um... and not seeing. <laughs> Johnny just put a, a foam pop shield on top of the mic and then was rubbing his fingers across it. And that, I guess that's how you start made some of those sounds. That's amazing. That is. So this is a Neumann U87, but but the uh, the thing I do all my sound effects recording with is a Sanken CS5, which is a stereo shotgun mic because I always think you want to be pointing at something, even if you're recording atmospheres or backgrounds. But it had a really long pop shield on it and. All of the conversations that I had with Jordan about the thing early on for the first three months were over Zoom because he was in Los Angeles and I was in the UK. So a lot of the sounds of the film were actually generated by me on a microphone because that was the easiest way of demonstrating to him during a conversation over Zoom. Because <laughs> I, just, I just know from years of being a studio assistant, when I was younger, I worked for this one engineer who was always tell me off for not muting the microphone before I went and put the pop shield on or adjusted it, you know, because the clients would go deaf because it was such an annoying loud noise. And so finally it became useful. <laughs> That's perfect. I, I was thinking it was a rubber stretching, but now I'm really happy to know that uh, it's the foam on a mic. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I was wondering if we could talk about the idea at the end when Jean Jacket becomes huge, his voice changes drastically, becomes, it's not this, but this is the closest thing I can previously in my life relate it to, almost like a foghorn, it's screaming. Can you talk about how you created that? Yeah, totally. Jean Jacket, you know, is, is a flying beast and we wanted to create something that was a weird, interesting sound. And we looked at the world of birds because the, the point of that end scene is Jean Jacket having been ignored by OJ because he won't look at it. And the only way that Jean Jacket can get to eat people is if they look at it. So Jean Jacket in that scene is very much showing off. And it was sort of felt like a, you know, almost like a mating dance of, of a bird. So we looked at all sorts of different animals and that sound that you're hearing there is a peacock. <whistles> Slowed down five octaves. slowed down with an awful, awful lot of LFE added. <laughs> it goes... <laughs> and yeah, when I put that on and played it to Jordan on the mix stage, you know, at like 85 decibels, it was just an enormous thumbs up. I mean, it works, doesn't it? It totally works. Another sound that the creature makes is almost, again, I, I'm relating to real world things and this is not a real world thing, but almost like someone smacking a mic with a bunch of reverb on it. Like it's almost like it's a glugging or something like that. What was the thought process behind that one? That sound is the kind of sonar location that Jean Jacket uses to, to scout out the prey. 
again that's just a uh, that is my voice that's me um with a microphone in my mouth kind of going <laughs> it's it's a sort of glottal stop thing it's part that and part <laughs> that stuff and and not actually tapping microphone but wow that was an awesome demonstration that was fantastic (laughs) (laughs) throughout this interview you've mentioned about how jordan peele sat with you and listened to endless amount of wins and uh he worked with you to build this film before it was shot Obviously, he must take sound very seriously. Can you just talk about what it's like working with Jordan Peele? Jordan Peele is someone who really understands sound. I worked with Madonna for a couple of weeks, and she really scared the hell out of me by how much she understood frequency and pitch and everything. And Jordan Peele was probably more intense than that. He really understands music, and he can describe sounds and their use, and their use in in all sorts of films over time. So... And clearly he understands sound because he uses it as a writing tool very much, way in advance of of most other directors, I would say. Yeah, he's also incredibly generous because he will suggest what he wants to achieve and let you go and work it out rather than, you know, sort of telling you what to do kind of thing, which is obviously, as we all know, you know, a more enjoyable way to work. So what's he like to work with? I mean, he's brilliant. He's, uh, you know, he loves sound and he uses it narratively. That's an absolute dream for someone like me, definitely. So when you say that he gives you, suggests something, you mean he suggests like the emotions that he wants invoked or what, what's he, what, give me an example of one of his suggestions maybe. When I play Jordan a reel, he will usually have like five or six notes and it will never be a specific, you know, I don't like this one thing or, or those little details. It will be something to do with the feeling he wasn't getting that he wanted or it will be expressing to me as a filmmaker what he wants that scene to do that it wasn't achieving. So he won't buy a dog and bark himself. He'll, you know, he'll, he'll encourage the dog to bark. So he would he would very much explain to me, for example, I, you know, that somehow didn't make me feel scared enough. There must be something we can do to to bring this scene to more of a crescendo. Or but it would never be kind of, hey Johnny, can you? And then you know, a very technical explanation. However. When you discuss it with him, he can talk in incredible detail. So he's very generous and polite because he, you know, because if he wanted to say, you know, it's the same thing like a director should never say to an actor, do it like this and then actually read the line in the way they want to do it, you know, because that doesn't really actually help them. So, yeah, he he, he could if he wanted to, but he, but he very much relies on helping you find the the goal, basically. And how did you two come to be working together in the beginning? Jordan called up, or one of his team called up and said, would you like to have a conversation with Jordan Peele? And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and then, so the next day we were we were talking and he, yeah, the first 20 minutes was, was about films that we'd worked on. And he said, look, I called you up because I saw a film that you did a few years ago called Under the Skin. And, you know, I just absolutely loved the way Sam worked on it. And that was brilliant because instantly then I knew what kind of film he was going to be after and then he sent me the script and I read it and I completely understood that this was going to be a film where we were going to use sound to tell story and yeah so the first conversation with Jordan was was uh, a real dream because it was like-minded love of film sound basically amazing well congratulations on the film because it's definitely a film where sound takes a major role and people walk out talking about the sound yeah and I don't mean sound people lay people are walking out talking about it so congratulations thanks for talking to us today and hopefully we can have you on soon it was great talking to you thank you thanks tim thanks mark great talking to you guys 
Wow, that was a fun talk. It was so generous of Johnny to share some of his work in progress sounds for us to play during the interview. That peacock slowdown is bonkers! We will definitely endeavor to have Johnny back on Tonebenders again in the future. This episode was volunteer edited by Keith Morrison. Keith specializes in production sound, working primarily as an assistant on feature films. As a sound recordist, Keith works on short drama and sound effects creation, as well as utilizing his skills in post-production as an audio editor. Keith was able to turn this episode around for us super fast, and we had zero notes for him. If you want to collaborate with Keith, you can contact him through his site, morrisonproductionsound.co.uk. Thanks so much, Keith. As a small token of our appreciation, Keith will be getting a complimentary copy of Sonic Springs by Katrina Amsler. It is an amazing library of unique sounds coaxed out of a homemade contraption of springs being bowed, whacked, and tortured. You can find a link on the episode page to hear it for yourself. We have a bunch of great episodes coming up, so keep Tonebenders at the top of your mind. My name is Tim Muirhead, and for my co-host Mark Kilborn, thanks for listening to the Tonebenders Sound Design Podcast. Please tell your friends and colleagues all about this episode. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.